We are back in Revelation this morning and going to do, as I suggested two weeks ago, that we're going to have a, an overview of these sort of 14 chapters in the book of Revelation from 6 through to chapter 20. Um, I was planning to do it all in one week. That, viewed, that turned out to be pretty much impossible. So um, I'm going to do it over two weeks. Um, and so we'll, uh, we'll see how we, how we get on. I wonder if you ever had to deal with the question or maybe even asked the question yourself, if God is good and is all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about the evil within our world? The answer he is, and he will. And by the time we get from chapter 6 through to the end of chapter 20, we're going to see how God reveals his plan for dealing with all of his evil enemies, the devil, sin, and death. In fact, all those who reject his rule. But these, these 14 chapters are perhaps some of the most difficult chapters in, in all of Scripture, there are, of course, many different interpretations as to how these events are going to unfold. And the source of much of that controversy is probably centered in around, at least among Christians, around a, a thousand-year period that's talked about in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, known as the millennium. So what I want to do, I want to begin there, and then we're going to go back again, but I want to begin by briefly um, giving sort of some details of the three main views about the millennium and therefore about the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this world as we know it. So the first view is this, is pre-millennial. So a pre-millennialist will say that Christ will return and then there's going to be this thousand year period. In other words, Christ is going to come back, first of all, and then the millennium will follow that. So Jesus is going to come before even the seven-year period of tribulation. So a, a pre-millennialist will suggest that the seven-year period is actually chapter 6 through to 20 that we're going to be looking at over the next, the next two weeks. But the church, the church of Jesus Christ, will be taken from this world. The rapture, as is known, will happen before that that um, tribulation and that, and that um, period of a thousand years. This is a very literal translation or very little interpretation of the book of Revelation. After that thousand year period where Satan has been bound up during Christ's earthly reign, Satan will be set free to deceive the nations and he will gather an army of deceivers and he will take up a battle against the Lord. And this battle will end in the judgment of the wicked and of Satan, and the righteous followers of Jesus Christ will enter into an eternal state of glory, into a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, that's what it roughly, very quickly, is to, be, um, to believe the pre-millennial view. The second view is post-millennial. So they say there will be a thousand year period, and then Christ is going to return so Christ is going to return after the millennium. Okay, pre, post, pre, okay, and then post, going to come back after the millennium. So the post-millennialists believe that this millennium is an era, so not literally a thousand years. They would interpret it as being just a long period of time, during which Christ will reign on the earth. 
but not a literal earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives. After this gradual Christianization of the world, Christ will return and will immediately usher the church into an eternal state after the judging of the evil and Satan, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. I hope this is the right one, if I'm honest. It sounds great, you know, this gradual Christianization of the world. But there's a third view, and it is the amillennial view. And there is no future, no literal a thousand year period. Instead, we are in it right now. It's a phrase that symbolizes this present age between the two comings of Christ. In other words, we are living in chapter 6 through to 20 right now. And an amillennialist believes that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, at which point he gained victory over Satan and the curse. And Christ is reigning right now at the hand of God the Father, and he reigns over his church. And after this present age has ended, Christ will return and will immediately usher the church into eternity after judging the wicked. Again, a new heaven and a new earth being formed. Now, any one of these views could be right. The chances are they could all be wrong as well. Because nobody really knows, okay? So that's where we're coming from, okay? We, these views are good, legitimate reasons to believe each of these things from Scripture, but there's also flaws in each of them as well. But what they all have in common is two things. Firstly, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And secondly, when he comes back, it will end with his victory and the forming of a new heaven and a new earth. That's everyone agrees on that we can be sure about but what we finished off two weeks ago was with the lightning flashing and the thunder sounding and the creatures with six wings and the many eyes singing praises to the lord and god is holding a scroll that is sealed with seven seals in his right hand but nobody could be found to open this scroll or those seals except for jesus and Jesus is seen as a lamb standing as if it has been slaughtered, but also as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the lion lamb has taken the scroll, fastened with the seven seals, from the one who sits on the throne. Chapter 5 and verse 7. As we move into chapter 6, we will see how Jesus begins to break and to open the first four seals of the scroll. And as Jesus does this, again, really, really helpful if you've got Bibles to, to follow this in your Bibles. We're going to jump through it fairly quickly. But, so as Jesus, Jesus breaks these first four seals, he releases the first four horsemen of the apocalypse. Victory, war, famine, and pestilence. And the imagery of these horses is related to a vision that's described in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 to 17. Horses represent God's activity on this earth, the forces that he uses to accomplish his divine purposes. But when people refer to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they're very often thinking about the very end of time, which of course would be very much a pre-millennial view, and of course could be absolutely right. But an amillennialist or a post-millennialist 
would believe that actually most of Matthew chapter 24 and, and pr- pretty much all of, ch- of Revelation chapter 6 through to 20 are about this present time between the two comings of Jesus Christ. So the truth is, there's a very good chance that those horses are already riding right now. That we are experiencing all of In fact, you just switch the news on any given day and just listen to the headlines of world news and you won't take much, much convincing to believe that actually those horsemen are actually on the ride right now with the wars, with the disasters, with the different things that are going on within our world, that we are actually living in chapter 6 through to 20 right now, that this is apocalypse now. When the fifth seal is broken, the souls of the martyrs cry out for justice. But they are urged to be patient until the appointed number of people have been martyred. Now we need to understand that God is sovereign and God is loving, but he is also holy, chapter 4 and verse 8. And this holiness is expressed in his judgment on a rebel world. And the ruling Christ allows and, and even authorizes these agents to wreak havoc as an expression of his righteous reign. Now this is not the complete answer to the very complex question of suffering within our world, but it actually is a very important part of the jigsaw. And disasters are not a sign that this world is out of control. Instead, they are a sign that this world is under judgment. And in all of this, we need to remember who is the one who is opening these scrolls. It is the Lord Jesus. It is the terrifying lion, but also the slain lamb. And it's the lamb, it is Jesus who opens each one of them. Now this is certainly not gentle Jesus, meek and mild that you learnt about in Sunday school. Or perhaps that many people would want to suggest that's all that he is. But the thing about this that should surprise you most is not that he will come and judge a world that is turned away from him, but that he came into a world as a man, that he experienced the worst of it, that he was slain on a cross to bring people into the Father's kingdom so that they would not need to face his wrath. See, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a way has been already made that people can escape that final judgment. And these, these four horsemen, they're just simply a glimpse of what is to come. But Jesus has provided the way to the Father through faith in him. And that is the key message of Revelation, that there is hope. With all of these disasters that are talked about, there is hope. And that hope is a person. That hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must never forget that the keys of death and Hades, in verse 8, belong to Jesus, our Lord. He is in control. The breaking of the sixth seal unleashes a massive cosmic upheaval that just devastates this world. And the imagery is drawn from a number of Old Testament passages that that help us to look ahead to the final day of judgment. But again, these presence of these disasters are just a warning that this day is coming. God's judgment in the present and his final judgment 
are all sealed on the same scroll. Before the breaking of the seventh seal, an angel marks 144,000 people with the seal of God to protect them from the coming devastation. And other righteous people too are to be saved. In fact, they are described as a great multitude of people from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages. They have been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. They have come to Christ by faith. They've been washed clean by his precious blood. And they too will be protected. This is Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Now what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that if you look in the mirror that there's going to be some sort of special mark or seal across your forehead. Those wrinkles, or sorry, those lines, sorry, are simply just wrinkles, unfortunately. Yet, spiritually, if you are a Christian, you have an indelible mark there. You are marked out as God's. In a way in which a farmer sheep, a farmer brands its sheep with the mark to make it very clear that they are his, so God seals all of his people with his Holy Spirit as a mark of his ownership and his protection over your life. This is Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. However, we are still living in a world where these four horse men are carrying out their devastation. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you or even to remind you that as a Christian, there are going to be some challenges within life and that sometimes you will face opposition. But God's seal, God's spirit of protection is upon you and you are and can be kept spiritually secure in him. And we should be so thankful about this for the privilege, for the security of having the Holy Spirit. He truly is God's mark of belonging over your life. Now, there's a lot of debate around the significance of the number 144,000 who receive the seal of God, of the living God, in chapter 7 and verse 4. And some people will take this very literally and they're waiting for exactly 144,000 Jews, that's 12,000 from all the different 12 tribes of Israel to come to Christ. Now let me say, that may be true. Okay? It's a legitimate way of looking at this passage. But we need to also remember that Revelation is full of imagery and symbols and are not always to be taken literally. So you remember back to chapter 1 when we talked about or where it t- refers to the seven spirits of God and we say that the number seven stands for holiness. So there's not seven spirits. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, in the same way, I think the number 144,000 is probably significant. It's significant. It's all the tribes of Israel, but together they represent the whole of God's people So we could look at it this way. There are 12 tribes of the Old Testament, Israel. But there were also 12 apostles through which the Spirit founded the New Testament church. 12 times 12, 144. Again, the number 1,000 is just a big number. It's a huge number. represents a large number of people in this case. So it's actually probably, well, in my view, very unlikely that 144,000 means that there are only going to be that number of people in heaven. 
it does mean that there is a perfectly huge number of believers from every age, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, represented before the throne of God and worshipping Him there. And also, it means there is hope for us all. Finally, it's time to open the seventh seal in chapter 8 and verse 1. And there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Sometimes the right response to God in His awesome holiness is not praise, but silence. And there are times when we have no words to really respond to His character, to His power, or to His plans. But the opening of this of this, um, this seal sort of feels a little bit like an anticlimax in many ways because when this seal is opened, all it reveals to us are seven trumpets that are to be blown. So what does this mean? What's really going on here? What's the relevance of the seals, seven seals and seven trumpets? Well, I want to suggest to you that the seven trumpets provide a different camera lens on God's judgment on a rebel world over the same period of time of history between Christ's first and Christ's second coming. Their structure is also the same. So I don't think that the seven trumpets necessarily follow on in order of time, but that the seven seals and the seven trumpets that follow them are actually a rerun of similar events. I'll explain why I'm suggesting that, just going back to a story in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph and Pharaoh comes to Joseph with two dreams. One of the dreams is that there are fat cows and thin cows, and the scraggy thin cows eat the fat cows. And then there's another dream with the fat corn and the thin corn, and the, the thin corn eats up the fat corn. And Joseph says to him, both those dreams are the same one. They mean exactly the same thing. You interpret them by actually saying there's going to be seven years of plenty and followed by seven years, seven years of famine. And I would suggest in a similar way, these seven trumpets and these seven seals are just two different pictures given by God to look at, a very, at the same event, the same time in history. These first six trumpets, when they're blown, will take us through to the end of chapter 9. And then there's going to be a break as we focus on God's people in chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 before the seventh trumpet is blown in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. Whatever your interpretation or view about the trumpets, the biblical association of these trumpets is not a pleasant evening out listening to a brass band. Seven trumpets are a sign that God is engaged in a holy war against a rebel world. The blow of these first four trumpets brings with it disaster and destruction with fire falling out of the sky. This is Revelation 8 verses 6 to 12, which parallels with the first four seals, which we looked at previously. Again, do not forget that in Revelation, it uses a lot of symbolism, so we need to be just beware about taking this all very, very literally, so just be a little bit careful about that. But it seems unmistakable that there is a environmental effect 
as a result of the blowing of these trumpets. And environmental changes are another indicator that Jesus Christ is coming back. So wars and famines and disasters and perhaps global warming and, and, and environmental changes that are going on, just another indicator this world is coming to an end. Jesus Christ is coming back. If you're any doubt, he is coming. With the fifth, when the fifth angel blows his trumpet, it tells us that a star which has fallen from heaven to earth is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. This is chapter 9, we're in, verses 1 to 3. In Luke chapter 10 to 18, it suggests that this fallen star is actually the devil. And the chimney leading out of the abyss is unlocked, and bizarre locusts emerge in the, spo- in the smoke, stinging everybody unmarked by God's seal. The abyss, or this bottomless pit, is the realm of demons. The fact that the devil is given the keys, even now, shows us that God is in control over him. Listen, God will only permit Satan to do as much as God will allow him to do. And the, fo- and the locusts are almost certainly symbolic of demons. But part of God's present judgment is that he hands unbelievers over to the influence of evil forces, which have now been let loose within society. The tragedy is that by nature, we actually choose this. This is, this is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor they give thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they engaged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds, and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to their shameful desires of their heart, to sexual immorality, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever to be praised. Fear and anxiety, and despair, and futility, and spiritual confusion are all around us. And people will look to anything or to anyone else other than to the one true God. And these are all hallmarks of a society that is under God's judgment. And if these are the side effects of being on the run from God, well, surely the only answer is to stop running and to turn to Jesus Because those who belong to Christ are filled with his spirit. They are sealed and they are protected by him. And this is both something that we should be thankful for, but also something that we should be praying for with urgency. So keep praying for God's protection over your life, over your family, over your friends, that he would deliver us from the evil one. Matthew 6, 13. When the sixth trumpet is blown, four angels are released with a license to kill a third of mankind in chapter 9, verse 18. And they command an army of troops on horseback. And like the locusts early in this chapter, these terrifying horses in this vision seem to represent demonic forces. 
And the devil and demons do their best to damage through their mouths, through lying and deceptive words. And false religions and beliefs are deceptions spread by the enemy, but ultimately permitted by God, verse 13 to 15. And this is all part of God's present judgment on a rebel world. However, despite all of this, there is still no repentance. The survivors carry on worshipping idols. They behave immorally. But listen, as God's people, we must not be disheartened by this. We must take courage. We must not even be surprised that the majority of people around us continue on in their own hard-hearted path. But we must pray for strength for endurance, to keep following the truth, to keep focusing on Christ and on Him alone. Eventually, another angel descends from heaven, announcing the imminent fulfillment of the mystery of God with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. These first six trumpets, as with the first six seals, have produced devastating effects across the history of this world. The seventh trumpet in 11 and verse 15 will announce the end of history. But before we get there, our focus changes for a moment to the role of the church within our world. Have you ever wondered what the church is here for? What is our function here? What is our purpose here? Well, the answer is found in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. And John is ordered to consume a scroll. And as he puts this scroll into his mouth, it tastes quite sweet to begin with. But once it hits his stomach, it's really very bitter. And this bitter, sweet gospel message has been revealed to us, revealed to God's people from heaven. But we are to pass it on to a world that is under judgment. But we need to make sure that we first of all believe it and are feeding on it for ourselves. But be under no misconception. This message also comes with a price. And John is told that there are two prophets, two witnesses, who will arise to preach the word of God within Jerusalem. And Revelation is crystal clear that witnessing to the truth in this world will cost us greatly. It is both sweet and bitter. In fact, it can cost us our lives. But it's also crystal clear that that does not mean for a moment that we ever stop witnessing. This world needs to hear about Jesus. And God deserves to be glorified. And we must learn to speak God's truth with God's authority. And it's so important that we have the right understanding of what it means to live for Jesus and to be a witness for Jesus in a world that is sometimes very hostile to the message that we bring. But also, we must remember that the greater truth is that God will protect your eternal life. You are sealed with His Spirit so that you can have a great, a great determination to be faithful and to witness for Him. The period of these two witnesses, these two prophets who proclaim the gospel has got a time limit on it. That time is rather precise. It's said to be 1,260 days. This is Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. Before they are killed by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit in verse 7 of chapter 11. Now this number 
1,260 or 40, which is the same number if you do the mathematics, is symbolic. No surprise there. This was the length of the prophet Elijah's ministry of judgment, which is referred to in chapter 11 and verse 6. It represents the whole of the church age. That is the time between Christ's first coming and his return. So the church, symbolized by these two witnesses, these two prophets in this chapter, these are God's people, spiritually protected, divinely empowered witnesses in a world that is under judgment. And listen, that is why we are here. That is what God has called us to do, to be divinely empowered witnesses filled with his spirit in our world, to bring Jesus Christ into our community, to make sure that we are proclaiming Christ wherever we go. We are carriers of his presence, and we need to bring him into our place of work, into our communities, into our schools, wherever we find ourselves, so that he is glorified. But if you think that this world is going to just welcome the gospel witness of the church with party poppers and with rejoicing, we unfortunately are going to get discouraged very, very quickly. It's so important that we have a realistic expectation. However, the killing of these two prophets isn't the end. And God will revive these prophets and will strike Jerusalem with a powerful earthquake. And the symbolic description of the church in this chapter should remind us of someone. A faithful witness for three and a half years, given authority by God to exercise a powerful ministry of proclamation and prayer, opposed by the world and in the end put to death, Lay dead for three and a half days as his enemies rejoice and then raised by God to life and taken up into heaven in a cloud. Remind you of anybody? The career of the church follows the same pattern as that of Christ. And listen, this should encourage us to keep going. It should warn us to be realistic. It should challenge us to follow his example and to be a faithful witness to the world that is under judgment. And we are called to bring the gospel to everyone, to be prepared. And some people are going to welcome it with open arms. They're going to respond in repentance and faith and just give their life completely over to him. But others are going to reject it. Others are going to get angry. Others may even persecute you. Finally, the seventh trumpet is blown and John hears a voice shouting from heaven. This is chapter 11, verse 15. It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The moment for justice, for punishment, for triumph has arrived with lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hail. In Revelation chapter 12, it begins with the opening of God's sanctuary in heaven and the most decisive battle in the history of this world begins between God and the devil, which will result in the defeat of the powers of darkness. And in this chapter, we will see, from two, again, from two different camera angles, 
the earthly perspective in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, and then a heavenly perspective, verses 7 through to 12. First of all, on earth, it says how a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, gives birth to a child who is almost eaten by a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And this woman represents the people of God. And her labor pains symbolize the suffering of God's people down through the ages as they wait, as they long for the birth of Christ. And then at last, the baby that they've been waiting for for so long is born. And the devil sought to destroy him through King Herod and through the massacre of Bethlehem's baby boy. The devil's attack continues throughout Christ's life without any success. But then at the cross, Jesus dies. And it looks as if it is all finished. It looks as if the devil has finally won. But God raised him to life and he returned to heaven to be crowned as the universal ruler, the one who is the king above every king and lord over everything. This child is saved from the dragon and brought to heaven. And then we turn around in verse 7 and we look from a different angle, from a heavenly angle. And we see the archangel Gabriel making war on the dragon who is Satan. He defeats him and drives him from The dragon continues to pursue the woman who yet again escapes him. Instead, he makes war on her children. But God's people are now protected and they are led by him into the wilderness, a place of divine protection, but also a place of difficult hardship. Now, often people, as they look at the book of Revelation, they are thinking just all it's talking about is some future battle, the battle of Armageddon. And of course, that is mentioned here, but the focus is actually much more on a past greater battle when God defeated the devil through the work of Christ. Now, if you're a sports fan here today, you perhaps quite would quite like just digging out and replaying old footage of your favorite team, um, of the victories of your favorite team. So perhaps the, the 1966 World Cup final where England won, that's been played over and over. Every football match, you can guarantee it's going to be brought out and people are looking at it, hoping that that may just happen again someday. But the greatest victory of all is the victory of God over the devil. It's one for us as God's people, as Christians, to replay and to enjoy over and over and over again. You see, Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. Jesus will when in fact the word translated overcame or triumph in chapter 12 and verse 11 comes up in various forms something like 15 times throughout the book of revelation those who trust in christ are on the winning side this is a reason for us to rejoice the late british pastor john stott said it is impossible to read the new testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it. Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. This was the vocabulary of those first followers of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, even if things feel tough, even if you're going through difficulties and ongoing battles in your Christian life, don't be surprised. 
That's life, okay? That's what we're, we're hearing here. Don't be surprised that there are going to be challenges and battles ahead, but also you can be joyfully sharing in and experiencing Christ's victory. And there's so much, there is so much for us to be thankful for through faith. You share in Christ's victory over the devil because at the cross, the devil's case against you has collapsed and his accusations no longer carry any weight because Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. So rejoice in that victory and pray for more energy in the battle. Be confident that God is with you where the battle seems fiercest, but also the Holy Spirit is there just to help you remember the victory, even, even when the battle sometimes feels lost. James Chalmers was born in Scotland. He heard God's call at the age of 15, and he committed his life to Jesus in 1859. Eight years later, in 1877, he sailed to the Cook Islands, to the island of Polynesia, to join pioneering work in New Guinea, where he served for 24 years. At the end of 24 years of, mission, of missionary service, Chalmer reportedly prayed, reflecting on the past 24 years, he said, Give me back all the experiences. Give me the shipwrecks, the standing in the face of death, surrounded by savages with spears and clubs. Give it back, and I would still be a missionary. He continued to press on in the gospel. And it is said that his success was because he never doubted his Savior and that he knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ would save the people of New Guinea. In 1901, he was murdered by cannibals at the age of 60. However, the story doesn't end there. During the Second World War, an American fighter pilot was shot down over New Guinea and they were led to Christ. That had been so impacted by the witness of James Chalmers, a pioneering missionary some 40 years earlier. You know, we look at the challenges in life and we look at the difficulties that we go through and we see them from our perspective. We see them as if there's something that, that God could never use us because of this or God could never work through this particular tragic situation within my life. And listen, God's agenda is so much greater than ours. God's purposes and God's will are so often not for us to understand. And what sometimes looks like a loss is so often a victory. What we think is absolute disaster, God can turn around for our good. And listen, the enemy is out to try and destroy you. But Jesus Christ is victorious. And the message of Revelation brings home to us the power of Satan to destroy. But more importantly, the greater power of God to build his church and to protect his people. The book of Revelation is very much a celebration that the devil has been defeated. But defeat does not mean destroyed. Not yet. That comes next week. The reality, reality for us right now is that although the devil is defeated, he is still active. So opposition and spiritual attack will come but you can be confident that lives will be transformed by the gospel, that God's kingdom will grow, 
that you can live by the power of his spirit because Jesus is victorious and he reigns over all. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. We thank you for your word. Lord, even when it's tough and challenging, but Lord, we want to again just submit ourselves to you, to your calling over our lives, to your strength within us by your spirit. And Lord, we want to step out boldly and with confidence, but Lord, also step out in victory because of the cross where the penalty was paid, where our sins were dealt with, where we have been set free, where we received your mark, your spirit, where we know your protection and the certainty of eternity with you. So again, we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you as you came. Thank you as you died for me and for us. But thank you that you are reigning victorious and alive forever and forever. Amen.